Cornelia van Daun, your fellow at St Cross College, Oxford, and Professor of Epidemiology in the Nuffield Department of Population Health, University of Oxford. Uh, Cornelia, you came to Oxford relatively recently. Can you tell us your backstory? Sure. I'm, I, I'm just arrived one year exactly ago, but my backstory is that I worked in uh, Rotterdam at uh, Erasmus University. I've been employed there for more than 31 years. And in that setting, I was responsible specifically for genetic epidemiology. And that means that would be a very generic field of, uh, of research because it meant that in the Department of Epidemiology, I had to deal with lots of diseases. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, the disease where I uh, had my, performed my PhD research on, or the DPhil, as we would say in Oxford. Uh, but also cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hearing loss, you couldn't imagine what not, because I was a genetic epidemiologist. And um, slowly but surely I wanted to change, that I wanted to put my focus on Alzheimer's disease again, dementia, and uh, that wa that's why I wanted to have a change of perspective. Okay, so why, why, what, what has driven you or taken you to thinking about Alzheimer's and dementia again? Well, when I was young and started my uh, research period, then uh, there were two diseases which were extremely uh, important uh, new epidemics. So the one was Alzheimer's disease and the other one was AIDS. And uh, although, uh, of course, all the research around AIDS was exciting as an epidemic because it was true epidemiology. There was a new disease, it was clustering mm. uh, in certain places, in certain uh, risk groups. But I, I opted for Alzheimer's disease because it was a, a, a really a forgotten epidemic. But it also had the charm that uh, I was very much taken by genetics and epidemiology. And um, it's a very genetic disease. It's, it's up to 60, 80% determined by your uh, genes. And we didn't know anything of what caused the disease, but we knew one thing, it's genetic, and the cause of the disease must be in chromosome 21. So this is where I entered, and uh, we were not the first to discover the, the gene on a, uh, chromosome 21, but we were one of the first finding it segregating with uh, both dementia and uh, as well as with uh, vascular pathology. In one case, you see the, uh, the protein amyloid in between the neurons in the brain and killing the neurons. And on the other hand, in the patients with the hemorrhage or stroke, uh, the big bleedings in the brain, it was stored in the vessels, the blood vessels, and therefore caused the rupture. Okay, so uh, a link that hadn't previously been identified. No, and everybody was, uh, 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 well, people knew that uh, having a lot of amyloid in your blood vessels is a bad thing and that could cause bleeding, but that you could have a single gene going to these two different disorders, that was very exciting and, uh, and a very important new finding. Mm. And it was a wonderful finding that we had together with uh, the group of uh, Christine van Broekhoven in Antwerp, which I still collaborate with. and. It was a really an, a wonderful feeling that this was the first gene. Mm, fantastic. Now, tell me about your, your position now at the University of Oxford. Well, I still want to continue, so I'm going back to the roots of Alzheimer's, yeah. I'm really going back to the dementias, and I want to concentrate on that. 
Albeit that, uh, of course, Alzheimer's disease is a very, very strange disease that, uh, of course, you, you, you're born as a, as a normal person. There's nothing wrong with you until you are at the age of 50, if you're an early case. But if you're a really late onset Alzheimer's case, most cases occur around the age of 80. And then you lose your complete capacity. You don't know anymore how to dress. You would stand with your socks in your hand and have no clue where to put them. And uh, you, you can't, if, if you are uh, very interested in novels and have read books all your life, all of a sudden you can't follow any story. Even uh, the, the, the Teletubbies become very difficult for you to follow because you forget everything. And it's particularly in your recent memory, but uh, also uh, more and more your complete comprehension of the world. And you think that your, your daughter is your mother and you want to go see your father while you're 85 years old and your father is perhaps half century uh, deceased. So it's an intriguing disease and it still intrigues me that it's still a genetic defect is driving that. So you're born with that set, that mistake in your DNA, and it doesn't do anything until you're way in your pension day age. Mm. It's absolutely fascinating. Now tell me, how does St. Cross College figure in your life? Well, uh, of course, St. Cross was my, my chair in epidemiology is based in St. Cross, and uh, I, I really think that uh, the, the college is, of course, uh, very much uh, a part of the Oxford setting as uh, college life is part of uh, the whole identity. Uh, I, I'm very fortunate with St. Cross because I think it's a relatively new uh, college. Uh, it has a little bit the, the 60s feelings, I think, also around it. And uh, I enjoy that. I'm, I'm born in the 60s, so I'm a little bit younger. But uh, I really like the spirit. I, I, I think it's always nice to have young people around, uh, particularly in an age that they are developing and uh, are in a very crucial start part of their lives that they have to make major decisions uh, about their career, about their families. But uh, at St. Cross, I, I, I thought it quite remarkable that I always worked with uh, a lot of uh, pleasure in Rotterdam at the setting of Erasmus, but uh, I never met uh, people at Erasmus who also, like me, um, well, we all think this is the, the year where we all think about uh, the landing of the, uh, on the moon. And I always regretted that I haven't been able to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and here I met others who also had this feeling just at the dinner table mm -hmm. uh, with other fellows. So uh, until that, uh, up until now, that never happened. And, but it always has been part of my imagination. And um, well, I don't think I'm going to make it, but uh, it's good mm -hmm. to talk about it and what the limitations are and what the next frontier is. Mm -hmm. Well, we're talking about the, the next frontier and the imagination. Can you tell me a bit more about your research? I mean, I imagine that you must imagine a lot about the future. And I would also imagine that from genetics now to genomics, there must be a big shift in, in, in thinking in, uh, in, uh, in, yeah. in your line of research. Yeah, it, it has been an enormous development, and particularly in uh, genetics, and, but also in epidemiology, that we used to think in genetics there was one gene, and it must be amyloid. 
And the reason for that was uh, very simple, that if you think about uh, most neurological diseases, there is one single protein that uh, is really there defining the pathology. In the case of Alzheimer's uh, uh, amyloid, in the case of Huntington's disease is Huntington. Uh, So every disease that you can think of, uh, there is always a leading protein. It was clear that that we thought that should be the leading gene. Now, lo and behold, in the end of the 1990s, we were studying gene by gene, and we had identified the amyloid gene itself. We had found two genes, the presenilins, that are just uh, genes that code for proteins that cutting the amyloid into pieces, so that makes sense. And we had found apolipoprotein E. That was a bit of an odd bird that effect was smaller, but it was much more common in the population. So all of a sudden we started realizing that of all newborn babies, there was 16, 17% at increased risk of Lloyd AIDS. And you know, it, it, it wasn't that everybody developed the disease, but the, the, the risks were such that they were very comparable to the risk of a heavy smoker to, uh, to lung cancer. And we are warning everyone with who mm. wants to smoke on the package of cigarettes saying you shouldn't do that because you may get lung cancer. So what do we do with that with these babies? So that was a bit of a thing, but we were still looking at it, one gene uh, at another. And now, 20, 30 years later, we have all of a sudden that we think, oh gosh, it is not one protein. It is not one mechanism. It is not one disease. We are now uh, staring at 40 genes that uh, cause Alzheimer's disease. We are staring now at six pathways, not only the amyloid, but also the innate immune system that is involved in there, the lipid pathway, um, also endocytosis, so how does one neuron in your uh, brain or in the nervous system talk to the other? Mm. These are very essential processes, and they all seem to be involved. So it's, it's, it's amazing what has mm. happened over the years. So how, how important has systems biology been in, in, in changing of this thinking? You've mentioned six pathways, so I imagine yeah. there's an awful lot of things weaving in and out. Yeah, well, it becomes more and more important, and that is one of the things of my work now in, uh, in, in Oxford, is that you were thinking always very one-dimensional. You have a mutation that does uh, imply that something goes wrong uh, in the protein it codes for. And a protein can be, for instance, an, a hormone. And everybody can imagine that if you make too much uh, uh, of a protein like testosterone, you become very weird and start fighting. And if you don't make uh, enough of estrogen, you have also a problem that uh, you do not thrive well. So. There's a lot of problems that are attributed to proteins, but what uh, what you start seeing now that there is a failure, not only in the genetic mechanism, but the effects that it has in terms of what goes wrong in the body may involve many tissues. So in Alzheimer's disease, we, we finally figured that uh, a type, uh, two types of blood cells, the monocytes and the macrophages, are very much important. They're also very much involved. And especially the innate uh, immune system is a system that is involved in there. But it can be, and that is what we realized actually, 
the past years uh, rather than uh, the decade is that what we also started realizing that of course your brain is is one magnificent organ that has orchestrating not only the neuronal function where we initially thought is the problem you neuron die which is still the problem of course otherwise you don't become demented and so confused as you are as is the case with Alzheimer. But what we also started realizing after apolipoprotein gene was identified is also the astrocyte, which is just a helper cell in the brain. It's just the one who carries you know, the water from one place to another. It's just a servant. That's also important. So the next 10 years we have been studying the astrocyte and thinking, oh, it's the astrocyte. And uh, then we started thinking, now with the new genes that we have in the big data era, we almost are baffled by the fact how important uh, the glia cells are, which is again just supportive actors. They're not the leading cells, they are the supportive actors in the brain. And you would think, oh, of course you need them to clean up the mess, to make sure that there's no infectious in the brain that uh, that that could be harmful because then everything gets deregulated in uh, in life but it's a tremendous uh, amount of different cells that are involved not only in the brain so also in the blood and what we recently start figuring out oh god but the processes that are occurring are very different so in the astrocyte, it may be apoptosis, so that's a kind of harakiri that you think the cell sacrifices itself, it dies in order to, for the good of the organ. But on the other hand, that same mutation in a, a glia cell may do something completely different and activate the cell, which becomes hyperactive. And that becomes that is what systems biology is about. It's wonderful that we have now all these pieces of information mm-hmm. together and that we are trying and there, therefore genetics is important based on the genes everybody is studying a part of the of the picture but using the genes as the anchor we're going to make the whole picture work over the whole picture emerging that is very different on the different layers of cells and uh, organs that are involved Okay, that's that's amazing. You you mentioned well. You mentioned big data. Uh, that makes me want to ask the question: How how has epidemiology changed with the the emergence of of the the, the big data discourse? Yeah, well, the big data really in genetic epidemiology and genetics in general. Big data has always been there. So, but of course, big data, which are big data, which your computer can carry. So in 30 years ago, we were doing family-based study. We were almost stressing our computers with a family uh, with eight relatives and uh, 400 markers. And now we have uh, sample sizes, like a million people, and instead of eight. <laughs> and uh, the number of markers are also more than eight million. And even more data that we are uh, processing. So that big data has been completely changing our life. But what was the most important thing? How we is how we achieve this big data? Because in the past, when you had your family with a disease, you would say it's mine. Nobody can look at it. I'm going to solve it, and then uh, I'm not going to collaborate with others. Otherwise, after I find the gene. 
Now in the big data era, everybody has so much data and everybody is sharing each other's data. Mm. That is one of the most wonderful things that happened. And it really benefited the field because if you um, look at the major problem in science is that um, a lot of scientific uh, findings in epidemiology cannot be replicated. Mm. And one of the sciences that is always singled out is nutrition. So there's always somebody says, okay, because eating berries is very healthy. And then somebody else says, no, it's not. And the other one says, well, I think it's really bad for your health. Mm. <laughs> the opposite. And um, that gives a lot of confusion. And this is why in science, there's more and more worries about how can uh, we make sure that people still believe us as scientists if we say something, mm. because somebody says cry wolf, and then if you say that too often, nobody believes you also if, if it's true. So one of the things we did in genetics was wonderful, that we said we just talked to each other, looked each other in the eye and said, well, we're so miserable of this system, we're only going to publish if we replicate each other. Mm. And we do that before the replication and not after the mechanism replication because this drives everybody crazy mm. and that's a wonderful finding and this is why uh, even the gurus of people who say well it's going wrong in science there's too much uh, irreproducible findings that nobody can replicate genetics is what the one uh, and genetic epidemiology is the one that uh, sticks out so that's fantastic, and I think uh, it's one of the, the nicest things, I think, that the field itself organized itself. It wasn't imposed upon us. We just mm. took this as an, uh, a way of research and a way of life, and then we all agreed upon it, we should do it, and if we review a paper uh, that doesn't do it, we should say no to the paper and say to tell the editor we, he first replicate, and then he or she can publish. So that's a wonderful uh, development. And I think similarly in epidemiology, it, it's fantastic how the resources now are, but the most important thing in epidemiology is that uh, we have now a lot of studies who have followed people for a long time. And that gives also wonderful findings. So something that I think is very remarkable is that uh, if you look at the studies now at my department in Oxford, but also in uh, Rotterdam, but also in France, people have started realizing that uh, somebody who develops dementia really changes a lot. And, and, and if you have a patient in your family with dementia, you often notice that he loses a lot of weight. And it, it now turns out that if you really look at the data backwards, it turns out that uh, that happens already 15, 20 years before the disease starts. And we, in our innocence, always thought, well, if you're demented, you forget to eat. This is logical. And you don't often like your food, because well, if, if you think about a demented patient, right? I, I happen to have an old friend where her mother always made for the family uh, beans, green beans to eat every Sunday, and now she was demented and got green beans and said, oh, awful, I don't want that. And you, she thought, why did I have to eat this every Sunday? So um, that is something they don't recognize the taste, that they like it, and, uh, that, that's, uh, and that's why they lose weight, because you don't like your food. But it turns out 50 years, 15 years before the onset, you're not demented, you still 
can taste food. So what happens in the body is actually also showing how important the brain is for the body. Because if you look at the brain, if it starts dysfunctioning, well, your appetite goes changes, uh, everything changes, so your weight changes. We even think that uh, your whole liver functions get disturbed, so everything that you need is already being disturbed mm. before you develop the dementia, which is intriguing, but also very important. Yeah, very important. Um, what is especially important about your work, and for whom? Well, I think working on Alzheimer's disease is the most important disease. I think we all should, if, if we have to focus or research on one thing, I think everybody should try to solve this because this is, of course, a devastating disease for the patient, him or herself. If you, you notice that something goes wrong, you're thinking, God, where am I? And, of course, we all sometimes forget why we walked up to a room, but you... You really are in a room and you can't find your way back to the toilet or wherever you uh, need to go at that moment. So that is devastating for the patient and they suffer the most. But if you look at the impact of the disease also for the family, it's, it's one of the diseases in which the family suffers the most because all of a sudden your mother is not your mother anymore. Not only does she think you are the mother and not she, but uh, it's also the case that she turns into... A, um, a person that needs care as if she is a child because she really goes intellectually to a level of a six-year-old, of a three-year-old, and literally to, to a baby situation. So that reverses a lot of uh, the uh, roles what people have to deal with. So it's not only the science that we have to understand it, we also have to learn more and more how to deal with that disease and how to deal with these patients, how to make them a comfortable home in nursing homes. There has been a tremendous amount of research about that. What makes you happy? I mean, the simple thing people started out with, giving them a room with a fridge. Well, they don't even know what the fridge is for, right? And if they don't recognize the room, they still don't feel at home. And, and they should have a, they have a world of their own, like a child has a world of their own. Yeah, last but not least, society. I mean, it's a disaster for society because it costs so much. So much. It's, it's definitely, if not, it is already the most costly disease. It's going to be the most costly mm. disease because the patients live long. Uh, the relatives have to take care, have to leave their positions, have to or have to find another solution. So it's it's a very important disease. So what we really are doing, um, and this is why genetic epidemic is important, we're really looking at the basis of the disease, finding the genes, the DNA that drives you already from birth on into the disease, which is, uh, is fascinating that it can take so long. It's, not, it's not, not very usual that it takes that extremely long. And uh, on the other hand, we do the epidemiology also, thinking about... Uh, yeah, you know, what what is now happening? Is what is a risk factor? But what what is the risk factor? Is that now a cause or a consequence of the disease? And that we need to know because otherwise we give a lot of people advices which are completely wrong. Mm. If you say, well, you have to uh, take care that you don't lose weight, eat more. That may be not the solution because the problem is in the brain not regulating or dysregulating the liver function and therefore your whole metabolism goes berserk. 
So that is what we're learning now and unraveling. And if I look back in 30 years, we learn an awful lot. And I, I can't imagine how much more we understand than uh, 30 years ago. But it's still not a, it's still not enough. And it sounds perhaps a little bit uh, presumptuous, but I do feel, I think most of us in working in the field for so long feel that we're almost there, but it's like we just don't understand it yet. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the most comparable thing is that, uh, well, I think we have to find something in terms of medication, but not medication that treats a patient, because, yeah, that doesn't, first of all, it's, very difficult if, a ner if, if your uh, nerve cell, your neuron has died, how on earth are you going to make that alive again? That's very difficult. We mm -hmm. can't make dead things alive. But if we can prevent diseases, like we did successfully with cardiovascular disease, um, we prevented a lot, not, pe not many people. Some people get a myocardial infarction or a heart attack, but not a lot anymore. Mm -hmm. People get now, other problems, you know, if they lo live long enough, they get uh, heart failure and other problems. But you want to postpone the disease and you want to prevent it. But I think you need medication for that because I'm a nutritionist and uh, I started out working trying to get uh, the fat in your blood, the cholesterol down with eating less eggs. And it was never very successful unless, uh, until we discovered the statins, uh, which is the medic and, and other products now, the medication that takes the cholesterol down. And that made the uh, that really made the difference. So I think we need a medication for Alzheimer's disease, but we need it preventive, like statins. You take that to prevent the heart attack or myocardial infarction. And this is what we probably have to do also for Alzheimer's and dementia. Very exciting and important work. Uh, Cornelia Van Dahl, thank you very much. You're welcome.